you? Well, I'm on the M1 in the bunch of roadworks. Oh, I love roadworks. Can't get enough of roadworks. Um, oh. So, yes, so here I am. This isn't a legal call, though. Are you, are you travelling? I am, but I'm on the hands-free. I'm, I'm completely legal. Oh, yeah. uh, so, so, perfectly safe. But I've I... no idea how good... How good the signal is. Well, it's, it's OK. I just want you to explain your absence because I'm sitting in the studio at the smart end of London's King's Cross Red Light District and you're not I here. Know well. Yes, I know. And I, I really should apologise. Uh, unfortunately, well, what, what do I mean? I'm now in paid employment, having had quite a lot of time, which we don't need to go into now, of not being in paid employment. I'm now working. Uh, so uh, this is me working and travelling home on the M1 um, after a very hard day's work. But uh, have you? Yeah, I, I am guessing that you have. Uh, you are. You've got your our latest guest. I'm saying our latest guest. I haven't been involved in the guest yes. at all. Uh, so who is who is our guest for the first of 2019? Our guest is Helen Russell with her Atlas of Happiness. I had that book delivered to my house last week. Well, we'll have it back. And it looks fabulous. <laughs> well, we'll have it back, given that you haven't bothered to turn up. <laughs> anyway, what's your job? What is your job? What is my job? Yes. I am head of communications for the British Equestrian Federation. We will have no jokes between this bit and the next bit, but that is what I'm doing, yes. British Equestrian Federation, Head of Communication. Right, so if anyone listening wants to book uh, an event with horses and things yeah. like that, a Jim Carner maybe, can they approach you? Are you the person? Uh, if they want to book a Jim Carner, my <laughs> advice there would be to uh, look up your local... Search, where is my local Jim Carner on uh, any internet search engine and, and ring those people up. And obviously, if that doesn't, if that doesn't help, then, uh, then obviously contact me and I will do my best to search for your local Jim Carner on my Google. Can you get me tickets to the Horse of the Year show? <laughs> <laughs> That's, that is, funnily enough, the second question everybody asks me when I tell them about my new job. Is there any way uh, my daughter's something of a, a fan of Olympia? Would you be able to get me seats in the VIP? Uh, yes, we'll see how that works. If that's the second question, what's the first question people ask you? <laughs> yes, well, the first question is uh, is, 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 uh, is something else. Um, but, um, yes, all, all, very, all very good. How are things your end? I've, uh, I've been um, looking for a bit of news. Are we, do we know whether the news is out yet? No, the news is not out yet. Oh, dear. It's still, when it, is the news coming out? Uh, it'll be coming out week after next, I think. While you're there, I'm just going to read out some correspondence, OK? Is it still good, safe to do good. that? It is very safe to do that. Yes, OK, all ahead. right. So uh, here's some correspondence into the show. First of all, from Angie Cusky Rhymes with Husky, who, were, who won our poetry competition at the end of last year and got a WH Smith voucher. Yes? Yes, yeah, very good, very good. Uh, and 
so she sends in a photograph. She says, well, this photo was a challenge brought on by WH Smith not having mad blood stirring in their shop at Blue Water. Beyond appalled, but what? with a winning iPad phone mirror combination, I'm able to share this photo of me using my gift card to buy your book online. This is the kind of listener that we need to have. I knew we, <laughs> we chose very wisely. Yes, we did. Well, we, we were a little bit desperate with the please spend the voucher on Simon's book. But, uh, but it's good to see that uh, Angie Husky, Roman Husky, or the other way around, uh, as, as up on that. So good for her. Uh, Debs Massey, listen today whilst cooking. Great interview with my favourite rock god. This is Roger Daltrey, obviously. I have loved and followed his primal voice all my life. Liz Cashpole just listened to this articulate, funny and moving interview. The Who were the first live band I saw at age 13 with this lineup. The book was already on my Christmas list. Looking forward to reading it even more now. Thank you so much, Simon and Matt, for the joy that is your podcast. Imagine going to see The Who when you're 13. That's amazing. Damien O'Meara uh, says, off the back of the Ian Rankin edition, when he was waxing lyrical uh, about a particular book, I started and finished Ragnar Jonasson's The Darkness Tonight. I've never oh, before yeah. Yeah. devoured a book so quickly. Brilliant crime writing, massively worth investing in. Hasn't done much to help my 4.30 alarm, though. Then Ian Rankin replies, saying, it's always nice when people like a book you've liked. Cheers. And then Ragnar Janasson himself says, fantastic wow. to hear this, Damien. Thank you so much, and thanks again to Ian Rankin for the recommendation. How about that? Goodness me. Bring it all together. And then Rick Evely says, excellent Christmas present, and he's got a photograph of Blame by Simon Mayo. I just thought I'd mention that one. And... <laughs> <laughs> and oh, excellent. Are there any? Are there any itch emails at all? I mean, you know, let's go with the full trifecta, <laughs> shall we? Not at the moment, rather disappointingly. No. Oh, disgrace. Julia Cederman, uh on Matt's new job. This is the best news. Maybe we can get more equestrian books on Books of the Year podcast. Yes, yes, maybe we can. Although that will probably be a conflict of interest. But uh, let's 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 see whether we can explore that anyway. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, there's lots of other stuff, but we're we're run, we're running out of time. Um, and we wish you a safe journey, Matt. And make sure you're in our studio very soon, or else or else there'll be trouble. There will be trouble. Uh, yes. No. I, I absolutely. And I think your next author uh, has done uh, the Silent Patient which I read over Christmas. Yes. And goodness me, what a book! This is what a, a thriller. Alex Michelides, the, the silent patient. You're not going to yeah. be there. For, you're not going to be here for that one either. Uh, I might not. I might not be able to get to that oh. one either. But I will oh. say now that I thought it was a very good book, and it's got a. Oh my goodness! It's got a twist that I didn't see coming at all. And normally I can spot these things. Not a hint. Oh my goodness! One of those points where when you read the twist, I almost put the book on the floor because I was in so much shock right okay but as you're not going to be here next week I'm not interested in what you've got to say <laughs> yes my view doesn't count because I'm not in the studio I'm getting the feeling uh, I'm uh, being sidelined here just, by, just because I'm on the phone yes correct anyway yeah. sa safe travel see you soon see you soon best of luck with the news Jim Carner ahoy Okay, well that was Matt. He'll be uh, he'll be with us shortly when he can be bothered. Uh, right, we've got a guest to talk to, and I'm delighted to say that Helen Russell is here with her Atlas 
of Happiness. Hello, Helen. Hello, Simon. Very nice to see you. People might think an atlas has to be a certain size, you know, and it's, I don't know, at least A4 size or even bigger. And if you've got the Times Atlas of the world, you need you need like 100 people to carry it around. Otherwise, you're going to break your back. This is slightly handier. Uh, I would say, tell us, tell us what you've tried to do here with your Atlas of Happiness. So we have tried to make uh, beautiful illustrations by Naomi Wilkinson. We have made uh, a book that fits in your bag. It is still, I feel, uh, a satisfyingly significant weight in your hands. Mm -hmm. But it's a hardback book um, that covers unique happiness concepts from around the world, uh, 30 countries around the world, 33 concepts, and it's the global secrets of how to be happy, what people are doing differently. And as Matt's not here, I can say that it's got, uh, it's it has a kind of a textured cover, uh, and it's largely kind of turquoise, would you say? Yeah. With orange lines of longitude and latitude, like on uh, an atlas with an orange spine. And it says, the Atlas of Happiness has got a puffin or a penguin? Puffin. Love a puffin. Puffin top left, and a Scandinavian hut, wooden hut, uh, top right, by the author of the international bestseller, The Year of Living Danishly, uh, Helen Russell. And it's, a, it, it, it's a beautiful book and it's, uh, the illustrations are, uh, are most engaging, but it's the words that obviously want to talk to you uh, about. You arrived at this book, well, it says on the front about the year of living Danishly. Was that the start of this journey? Yes. So I lived and worked for 12 years as a journalist in London. I was editor of marieclaire.co.uk and I had no intention of leaving London um, until one wet Wednesday, my husband was offered his dream job working for Lego in Denmark. Oh. And we thought we were happy in London. We had good friends, we had close family, we had a life, but we'd we were quite stressed. We were working long hours. We were, we'd both been trying to start a family for years, but it never quite worked. Years of fertility treatment. And suddenly this, this other life possibility was dangled in front of us, the chance to swap everything we knew for the unknown. And so we visited one weekend. And at the time, Denmark had just been voted the happiest country in the world. And we noticed the people we saw around us, they didn't look like us. They were uh, more relaxed. They walked more slowly. They talked more slowly. They took their time to stop and breathe and we thought well if we can't get happier in Denmark in this happiest country what hope do we have so we moved and I started to investigate Danish happiness wrote this book it was published in 20 countries around the world and I started to get messages from readers which was lovely but sharing their own country's unique happiness mm -hmm. concepts and where I live it's a strange sort of international community and it's actually a community and people from all over socialize and I started to be approached in person in bizarre settings from forests to public loos to sand dunes uh, baggage carousel at the airport by... approached in a toilet yes yes really? queuing in loos there's always queues okay. in the ladies loo Yes, that's right. Often chatting. So by people saying, oh, well, actually, you want to do this from my country and you want, how about this? And and so I began to uh, collect together these different happiness concepts people were telling me about from around the world and then started to research further into uh, what different countries were doing differently. And I set out to speak to normal people doing normal jobs around the world to find out what culturally people did differently. And... Did you find, I mean, you've got 33 different examples here, but did you find broad uniformity? 
you know, did they do they all kind of coalesce around a few core ideas, or is it quite disparate? Yeah, it's interesting. Some of the theories contradict each other, just as the cultures of some countries appear the, the antithesis to the other. Um, there were some common themes like um, proximity to friends and family, spending time out of doors, work-life balance, but some of the concepts were intriguingly unique and um, many of them were, were you know, some ideas were communal ideas of happiness, some were more individualistic. So it was a real spread and some of them I felt a certain affinity to and others I thought, goodness, that would never work for me. But it, it feels as though actually it depends on the person reading it, what they will take from it, I think. Because the idea of kind of cultural and national identity is quite it's much discussed, but you can, you know, there are a lot of pitfalls there. But I went to see Bill Bailey recently, and he's, it was a fantastic show, very, very funny. And he talked about how in Australia, because he spends a lot of time in Australia, if you say, did you have a good, well, how was your day? The standard response would be awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, what was that record like that you listed? It was awesome. Same British person at the same having the same experience we go oh it's all right yeah it's okay and there's just a huge cultural difference yeah in and I kind of recognized myself in that that I was most unlikely to say that was awesome mm-hmm. obviously I'm now going to train myself so if someone says to me how was your books podcast with Helen Russell I'm going to say it was awesome thank you but there is but there is that kind of what is that down to is it stuff that we inherit from our parents is it stuff that we watch on the television, what is that? I think it's a bit of all of those things. For example, uh, in Iceland, there is, um, they were the original Vikings, you know, they left the mainland to make their home in a really inhospitable country. There is an inherent grit in the Icelandic personality now. Sure. There's a dark side. Uh, they barely see the summer in, in winter. 54% of Icelanders believe in elves. There's a sort of... Uh, a real creative imagination. And so that's been formed by the landscape, by the history, by the culture. Uh, again, that sounds as so they're mad. They've been driven mad by the darkness. They're some of the wisest people I've met. They've got some some life advice that I feel like we could all benefit from to be a yes, bit more like. So the Icelandic reference here is uh, Tata Radost, is Tata that Radost, how we say it? yes. Which kind of means it'll be all right in the end. Yes, it's this sort of, this inner core of resilience and grit and belief that we'll get through it. And the country, you know, has bounced back after their three major banks collapsed. They, uh, you know, their football team did really well. They, uh, for a while, they were doing so well in CrossFit that three of the four fittest women in the world from Iceland, they produce great artists, great writers, more books read and written per head than anywhere else in the world. There is something in the Icelandic personality. They're taught from a really young age to go outside no matter what the weather. Mm. They're just taught to be to be tough um, and and it serves them well. Yes. Really. So, so there is a lot. So obviously, the geography there is particularly significant. And if you have that kind of harsh climate, which the Icelanders have, I love Iceland. I think it's fantastic. But it's a harsh climate. I've only yeah. gone in the summer because I'm feeble. <laughs> I don't particularly want to go uh, in the winter. But so the other extreme, uh, Australia, where you talk about uh, having a fair go. You know, the idea yeah. of equality of opportunity, but it is tied to the fact that their weather. Yes, the sunshine is great, and that the uh, there's a large percentage of the population which is near the water. They 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 have proximity to the sea, and that 
that makes a huge difference, doesn't it, in terms of your understanding of happiness? Yeah, and there's really low levels of uh, seasonal affective disorder, for example, in Australia. The sun is shining, the skies are blue. They say, you know, we're the lucky country. There is certainly an impact that the weather has. And again, in warmer climates, you see um, cultures tending to be more open with their emotions, perhaps, than we might have in the northern Europe, and more affectionate. Uh, in Brazil, there's something called cafune, the idea of stroking someone's hair. And it's it's quite a tactile culture. Well, any, well, Not anyone. No, you don't go up to people and say, can I, what's the word again? Cafune. Can I... Have a Kafuni experience with you, please? It depends how well you know them, Simon, really. I mean, um, but no, it's, it, there is, a, there is a, a cultural warmth. And again, in Costa Rica, they have Pura Vida, pure life, this, um, this idea that you will give everything your all. They, they prioritise education, they, um, they rest, they prioritise friendship. They just have a really, a really nice life, but they're also really warm and really loyal and really affectionate. Can you... If you step back from the individual countries, can you divide your atlas into sort of a Scandinavian approach, a kind of a European, Northern European, Southern European, uh, and then Africans? Are there broad themes that you can look at? To a degree. So Scandinavia is, for instance, I'm very familiar with, having lived there, and um I think there is a real emphasis on being outside um, Norway. There is friluftsliv, which is free air life, and this idea that you have to earn your lunch by going for a big bracing walk. Uh, in Sweden, it's a lot to do with spending time outside. Smaltronsdale is your symbolic strawberry patch, so you restore yourself. Okay, hang on. Let's so do that word again. Smaltronsdale. Smaltronsdale. Very good. You are a Viking. Yes. I am. I am. Um, I am genetically Viking. Uh, and I do love the Scandinavian thing. So but so the idea of a small strawberry patch means what? It means what? that traditionally um, kids would go into the forest, find a wild strawberry patch, thread wild strawberries on a blade of grass. It was very in a very famous children's book, Children of the Forest in Sweden. So a lot of Swedes have grown up with that. And it's now come to mean in adulthood the place where you go to restore, often associated with nature. So it can be your favourite bench in a park or the top of a hill, or it can even be, you know, your own back garden. And there's this idea that you will restore in nature. Okay, all right. So that's so. is that the, the approach that you'd find that you have a natural affinity to because you spend so much time in Denmark? Um, well, I... I've learnt to appreciate that, I think, uh, living in Denmark, but the ones that have helped me personally uh, over the course of researching this book over the last five years are things more perhaps towards the Japanese concept of wabi-sabi. I was going to ask you about that because that's one of the kind of standout entries because you really feel as though that they're onto something and that actually this is moving into philosophy. But anyway, so just explain wabi-sabi. Yeah, so wabi-sabi is the the beauty of imperfection. It's a worldview centred on celebrating uh, things that are not ideal, but you accept them anyway and you accept the transience of nature and life as it is in all its imperfections imperfections and uh, they also have something called kintsugi which is mending ceramics uh, with with metallic lacquer so instead of being concealed the cracks are highlighted in pure gold and it's this again this idea of, of wabi-sabi so it's not perfect but there is a beauty in that so age is revered in japan because with age comes wisdom 
Um, and of course, Japan isn't a terribly happy country. There's increasing uh, urban isolation, um, differences between old and young, but many who feel now that going back to a wabi-sabi way of life is the way to counteract maybe a, a the culture where people are working too hard or where people are not being in spending enough time in nature so that they are they are missing those things and going back to wabi-sabi feels like a way to center themselves again did you so there are 33 different entries here mm. uh, as i mentioned were there countries that you didn't include because actually either they had nothing to contribute uh, or there was repetition or actually their idea of happiness wasn't didn't really hold up to any kind of philosophical examination well, I love Poland and I have some amazing Polish readers, but everyone I spoke to from Poland said, I'm sorry, I've got nothing. We've got nothing to say. I've got nothing. We're miserable here. Yeah, so <laughs> that was a really tricky one. Um, yeah, so there, yeah, there were some places that were omitted okay. because of that. Uh, we're talking to Helen Russell. Uh, her book is The Atlas of Happiness, and we'll do more in just a moment. Uh, Helen Russell is on the Books Podcast uh, today, Books of the Year, uh, and it's the Atlas of Happiness. And it's our first book of the year, so it seemed like a good thing to do for 2019 because um, there is this thing which you address it in the book about negativity bias, about how bad news, boy, is there a lot of it, kind of stays with us longer. So there's, there's, there's a point to this, isn't there, that actually the good stuff has to be pointed out and underlined. Exactly. Yeah. So negativity bias means that as human beings, we remember bad events more intensely than we do the good. And we also remember them for longer. And this made sense historically to keep us away from the cave where the saber-toothed tiger was or to keep us away from that bush where the poisonous red berries were. But we were never built for rolling news or for social media. We were never built to be feeling danger from all angles all the time. And we have to work to consciously remember the good or we can't make things better. This isn't sort of, a, you know, a Pollyanna approach, but optimism isn't frivolous. It's necessary. We will not be able to take action and stand up and be members of society who are you know, committed to helping, to doing something good if we are feeling as though everything's terrible all the time, because then the natural response is to give up. So we have to keep going. And there are people all around the world in countries that top the happiness polls and in those that don't, who are finding ways to, to be happy and to keep going every day. So I really wanted to explore that and not just, as I say, countries mm. that are on the happiness poll. Yes, because it's kind of easy to to look at well-run democratic countries where the weather is kind of okay, uh, where there's a good education system, there's a taxation system and the government's kind of work, and you would expect a certain level of happiness. The really interesting ones are where you've gone to countries where that's not necessarily the case and still find that there are some uh, ideas which I want to look at. Well, why don't we talk about Bhutan? Because mm -hmm. they're the people who famously came up with the Gross National Happiness Index. So we've got the GDP, obviously, which measures one level of you know economic success. But tell us about the GN the gross national happiness, the GNH approach and what we can learn from that. Yes. So um, King Wanchuk uh, of Bhutan wanted to bring Bhutan uh, into the modern age. Until the 1960s, there were no hospitals, no roads, no schools. Um, but he wasn't keen on some of the trappings of modernity he saw coming from elsewhere. And in a in an uh, interview with the Financial Times in 1972, he was asked unsurprisingly about money in the Financial Times and he said gross national happiness is more important than gross national product. And then the government has been championing policies that 
uh, put through the prism, basically, of making sure it makes people happier and also sustains the environment. And there are clear links between environmental sustainability and happiness. People who care about the environment report being happier and people who are unhappy are bad for the environment because they tend to buy more, they tend to consume more we bribe ourselves to get through the day. So um, since 2008, that's been part of uh, the, the official uh, government in Bhutan. And they've done things like they said no to the work, joining the World Trade Organization because doing so would have meant opening up their forests in a way that wasn't compatible with their goals for the environment. They committed to making sure that 60% of Bhutan is covered by forests in perpetuity. And right now it's 70%. So they have this amazing commitment and they are marrying... Um, old and new. So there are surveys every two years to see how happy everyone is. They are getting happier. Um, they have doubled life expectancy. Uh, they have got 100% attendance in primary school. They are studying STEM subjects in schools. They're learning how to program computers. Um, but they also have traditional Bhutanese medicine. So they're doing some really interesting things. And Ban Ki-moon, when he was at the UN, um, encouraged the spread of the GNH throughout UN member states and try to sort of promote this. And I think we will remember David Cameron going on about it for a little bit before he left um, and trying to basically say it works. So we should all be doing this. Happiness is a weird word, isn't it? I mean, we're using it a lot and we're banding it about. And I wonder if sometimes whether, whether you know, is it um, walking around with a smile on your face or is it actually a deeper thing about satisfaction or not being unhappy. So this comes. So the word is Old Norse, hap, two p's, meaning chance or fortune. And I, I wonder if there is that sense of it in in our, in our understanding of the word. You know that it's not. Some people are happy, but they wouldn't express it like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely something. There are, of course, different uh, definitions of happiness and different metrics used to measure it. I I found the Chinese approach really interesting because their happiness uh, is zing, zing fu. fu, yes. And this is the idea of not just um, having a happy time, but it's a good life. And the good life will come with joy and sadness and all of the emotions in between, and that's a good life. And I was also very interested in the Brazilian term, saudade, the Portuguese term, um, that's very big in Brazil. They have their own dia de saudade on the 30th of January. And saudade is um, a memory of happiness that you once had, so reminiscing. And it's about being sad sometimes and and thinking back through things that you've loved and lost. And scientists have found that this sadness counterintuitively makes us happier because we it's cathartic. We're, we're getting out those emotions. It promotes generosity. It makes us more empathetic. And, you know, psychologists agree that it we we have to be open to these emotions. We can't just bury them down all the time. It's OK not to be OK. And that's part of happiness as well. So that was an interesting thing to discover and explore more. The um, I found the English chapter problematic. Go on. Because I was inspired by uh, Bhutan and Brazil and Iceland and Finland, which we'll get to. But then England's contribution seemed to be a bit feeble. <gasps> okay. So for England, mm -hmm. I highlighted the word jolly. Yes. Because I feel as though it often has connotations with maybe the upper classes or uh, wartime blitz spirit, but actually there is a sort of cheerfulness and a keep uh, keep going type mentality that has been a coping mechanism of sorts 
throughout British history, modern history at least. Um, so as well as... Is the keep calm and carry on? A little idea, bit. I was just trying to avoid saying it. But yes, yeah. yes. Um, I think, you know, we even see it in, you know, the London bombings, for example. There were syrupy outpourings on message boards and within hours... British people were saying, you know, we don't want that. We don't want London shut down. We want to carry on as normal. Even uh, the London Bridge attacks, there was the famous uh, image of the Liverpudlian called Paul running off with a half-drunk pint of lager. There's this idea that we will not be cowed, that we will carry on. And I think this plays into the famous, uh, you know, English humour as well. Um, satire, it's this idea that on a, at our best, we are all Stephen Fry and we are all, um, you know, Jennifer Saunders, we we are. There is that sort of cheerfulness and jollity that um, we're into Mary Poppins territory. We're into Mary Poppins territory, and I saw Mary Poppins Returns last yes, night. Yes, it's but, yeah. great. I've seen many times, but you know, it's a jolly holiday with you. And, yeah, and again, that reinforces that kind of upper crust, stiff upper lip, because that stiff upper lip doesn't. That doesn't really. That's not really what you're talking about, is it? Because that, although it's often used in association with the Blitz spirit and mm. keeping calm and carrying on. But stiff upper lip often is used also to indicate someone who's suppressing their emotion. And even though there's a rage and a storm going on inside, yes. they've just got the stiff upper lip. Yes, and I am by no means trying to sort of romanticise uh, British history um, or look at it through rose-tinted glasses. But And I think you're right that the stiff upper lip has not always been helpful but I think you know perhaps post 1997 and post Diana there was this sort of sudden national outpouring um, and we are a lot more familiar with with tears as a nation now you know any reality tv show there will be a backstory and there will be weeping and there'll be tears so it's almost as though we are we are becoming more emotional we are becoming more in touch with our emotions slowly but the stoicism that you were talking about. I wonder if that kind of links us in a little bit to the Icelandic Tata Rados thing, because, you know, it'll be all right, because, I mean, obviously their their geography and their weather is very different to ours, but there is a similar kind of stoicism to the way you were talking about the Icelanders. Yes, yeah, perhaps. And I, I talk about the, the Stoic philosopher Seneca uh, suggested that we all imagine losing everything regularly to make us grateful for what we've got. And... I think that also plays in... suggested that we lose everything just to make... That we imagine losing everything. Oh, we imagine. Yes, to make us value what we have. And and that feels as though that's quite a helpful thing in terms of of gratitude, that we are always being told to practice gratitude, Um, that we think about all that we have and try to be grateful for it. One of the... um... I don't know if this is just an English characteristic or a British characteristic, or uh, uh, there may well be French and German and Americans who relate to this uh, as well. But your article on what the the English and, and jolliness uh, led me to was looking back at the New York Times article where their journalist over here asked, "Have you experienced petty crime in London?" And she was doing like a fishing expedition to try and write about how miserable life was in London because of the upsurge of petty crime. Yeah. And then the New York Times basically got trolled by Londoners who, and it just made me so proud because the typical responses were, a stranger tried to talk to me on the tube, I've reported it to the police. (laughs) Someone clipped me with their trolley in Waitrose and only apologised once. I ordered a tea in a shop and they poured the milk in first. All this stuff, they were reporting back to the New York Times, yes, this is the kind of stuff. Uh, I asked someone how they were and they actually told me. (laughs) 
This, this to me sounds like a national characteristic. And my favourite one, someone held the door open for me when I was still 10 feet away and I had to run and pretend I was grateful. Actually, I was sweaty and fuming. You know, now that, there's a national yes. characteristic yes. there, which I, is that, is there some jolliness in there? I suppose. Yes, I, yeah. I, I think there's the, the sort of sarcasm. I, I laughed an awful lot when someone from Hollyoaks won an Oscar and they kept referring to him on the BBC by his Hollyoaks name, better known as Street Cage Fighter Liam, which made me just laugh so much. You just in America someone would be lauded for winning an Oscar and there would be there would be lots of sort of sugary praise heaped on them. And here we're just sort of like, well, you know, you were in Hollyoaks as a yeah. cage fighter, Liam. Um and so I think sometimes our sarcasm converge on snark. But yes, there's certainly something in there that's quite pleasing. So there's two more that, <clears throat> that I want to mention. One would appear to be trivial and the other would appear to be profound. Uh, let's do the profound one first. Okay. When you go to South Africa and you talk about the, the word Ubuntu, the first thing, at the end of each chapter, you have, a th okay, this is how you live more like the South Africans. Or if you like this word, this is, and the first thing is forgiveness. Mm. And I think it's the first time that word has come up as as a as a a route to happiness. Can you just explain a little bit more about Ubuntu? Because yeah. it just felt as though this was a different experience that we were reading about. Yeah. So Ubuntu is this idea that I am because you are, and that I cannot be happy unless you are happy. So it's a very much a communal idea of happiness, and uh, it it was really brought to worldwide attention by Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu, who took it to a theological dimension and just sort of said, well, I'm sorry to say, you know, suffering is not optional. We all go through stuff. I'm paraphrasing, but he didn't say the stuff part. Yeah. But, um, you know, we, we have to forgive, which is always always worth it, often hard. Um, but it's something that's essential. And um, Barack Obama referenced Ubuntu in Nelson Mandela's eulogy. And it's just something that's that's hugely important and is and is often forgotten. But many South Africans will say that at their best, that is what they are hoping for. And again, and not a very happy country right now, but that is that did seem to be the goal for a long time. And many feel that it should be the goal again now. Yeah, Ubuntu beats jolly, I think, in in general. Yes, I think that that's <laughs> so, fair to say. Um, okay, and the, and the other one, which is at the other end uh, of. Uh, the scale, uh, is the Finnish uh, contribution, which I think is Kalsari Kanit. That's right, yes. Do you want to explain this? This is not quite so profound, I don't think, as Wabi Sabi or Ubuntu. So, Kalsari Kanit, the uh, Finnish term for drinking in your underwear with no intention of going out, usually alcohol. Um, and the idea <laughs> is that it's so cold and bleak outside. It's fairly sparsely populated country, uh, outside of Helsinki at least. Um, so you could, you could go out if you want to. You may not bump into another person. But ideally, you want to get back home into your well-insulated house because houses are very well-insulated in Finland. And you want to strip off and you want to drink in your pants. And I came across this uh, friend, Marianne, who I was at university with, just talking and she said well of course yeah, there's always drinking in your underwear which everyone does at some point right and I had to say to her no I mean I've known you for 20 years you've never mentioned that this is what you do of a Saturday night I feel very uncomfortable with this, with the whole idea of this well I if said if you'd said drinking in you know or having a pyjama day and then you know that kind of thing that's that's fine but who wants to hang around the house in their 
underwear drinking alcohol. I said, why not a jogging bottom or a slanket? But apparently it's underwear. It's nothing lacy, nothing underwired. But I think there's something to do with the sort of Scandinavian comfort, uh, you know, comfort with being nude, which is probably why you and I find it a little bit, ooh. But um, I think if you can get to the point where you're comfortable being nude in your house, either alone or perhaps with a significant other, maybe watching TV uh, with a tipple of, of your choice, there is something strangely liberating about, as maybe nature intended, but with a bottle in your hand. Mm. And it makes not- people happy. I'm not really... I don't think Finland is for me. I think Jolly Jolly beats Kalsari Kanit. <laughs> On the scale. <laughs> I think so. Maybe you you have to, you just have to have a draft-free house and, as you point out in the book, one of the safest, best-governed countries in the world, and then you feel happy in your pants yes. drinking. Yes. But they do drink a lot in Finland. They do drink a lot, yes. Topped by the Russians, it should be said, but, yes, they do drink a lot. Have, has writing this book made you happier? I think it is... And if so, how? uh, Yes, I would say it has given me more tools for this stage of my life that I might not have come across otherwise. So my 40th birthday looming, the Japanese concept of wabi-sabi has helped me certainly um, when I I went to Tokyo to... to, talk about my first book just as I came back from maternity leave after having twins and I was out of sorts and overwhelmed and the idea I had of myself in my head didn't look anything like the stretched ghost I saw before me in the mirror and so this idea of us all being a cracked pot highlighted with pure gold and the beauty of imperfection was hugely helpful and the you know wisdom coming with age was helpful and I think um, the small tonstella the the Swedish idea of having this this place where you can go to recalibrate and restore has been very helpful with a growing family that's sometimes exasperating. And your family noticed the difference? Mum, you're so much happier now you've been writing about happiness. I think they think I'm putting away washing for a long time when I disappear for a while. But yes, I think um, it's, you know, increasingly we're living in in a world where we don't understand other people. So it felt like a great opportunity to understand how people live. And often now people travel, but they don't really experience the world. They just take pictures and it's just themselves with different backgrounds. So this felt like a great opportunity to see how people are living around the world and try to understand them a little better. So I've hopefully done that. Uh, what are you going to write next, Helen? Do you know? I am working on a novel, and then um, and then it'll be another nonfiction. Okay, Helen Russell's book is the Atlas of Happiness. Helen, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So thanks to Helen for coming in. Look out for her Q and A, which will be with you uh, in a few days' time. Next on the Books of the Year podcast, as Matt mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, another interview that he can't be bothered to turn up for: The Silent Patient by Alex Michelides. See you for that. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.